This is Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and together we interview a guest about their work in design. Because design is everywhere, and so are we. This episode is part of our live podcast series where members of Design Museum get a chance to enjoy a live show and ask their questions of our guests. So be sure to subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org to see more details about becoming a member and about our live shows. Today, we are talking about design firms that are focused on social good. I'm lucky to be joined by our guest co-host, Augusta Meal, founder and executive director of Agency, a Boston-based design firm using design as a tool to reduce structural inequity. Joining us a little bit later is our special guest, Michael Brennan, co-founder and CEO of Sevilla, a center for social innovation rooted in human-centered design to help courageous leaders tackle some of the toughest social issues. Together, we'll chat about this, how design agencies are doing the important work of marrying design and social impact. But before we dive in, check out our traveling exhibition, Bespoke Bodies, the Design and Craft of Prosthetics, which is on view starting August 16th through October 10th. You'll see our first in-person exhibition in over a year at the Josloff Gallery at the University of Hartford in West Hartford, Connecticut. Now, onto the show. Design can be a powerful tool for social good. What does that look like in action? I'm excited to learn more, and I'm excited to bring in our guest co-host. I'm joined by Augusta Meal, a designer and strategist seeking to use design to redistribute power in the systems of our country. After an education in American studies and a long history in the corporate design and innovation world, Augusta founded Agency Design a firm that applies and adapts human-centered design practices to the work of justice and equity. Much of agency's work is focused on disenfranchised communities across Boston and in systems of education, healthcare, and criminal justice. Augusta's design process merges with the philosophy of community organizing, seeking to redistribute power, create coalitions, and develop solutions that align incentives and values between community members and institutions. Augusta, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Hey, Sam. Thanks for having me. I would love to learn about when you discovered the impact of design and that, that sort of intersection with social good. What was that moment? What was that like for you? Yeah. So I spent a decade at Continuum, which is a strategic design and innovation firm, does a lot of work in the corporate space. I worked at Continuum to help develop the service design practice. And then from there, moved deeper into organizational innovation and helping companies build their innovation capacity. And then from there, the next like hardest intellectual challenge that I could see within their space was um, what they called social impact. And so started to explore from the seat of continuum, how design intersected with social impact work. In doing that, I kind of realized two things. One, that very often the way design was being positioned was at a programmatic level, when really so much of the challenge was at a systemic level. So for example, we did a project with the World Bank focused on women in Pakistan who were getting government um, disbursements. And the program was, how do we create mobile banking solutions for those women? Which sounds lovely. And they had all this research that said that these women have cell phones and they're, you know, there's readiness. And of course, when the team went to the field, realized that there are so many systemic barriers to these women being able to access their funds and to mobile banking being the right solution for them to, to do that. And so that was really the switch where I realized 
realized where design is living in the social impact arena is missing an opportunity. And then the second realization was that the way that traditional design firms are set up, where the unit of measure is the project, was not allowing me selfishly, but designers to really go deep and to build relationships and to be in community with the folks that you know we are working with in our design. Yeah. And have a more, I guess, authentic connection versus like, this is a job that we're like, we're a business. It's a beginning. It's an end. We're providing a service. That seems like a major difference between, you know, doing projects versus being on the ground and actually co-creating with people. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think human-centered design has a perhaps extractive background. And so a lot of the practices, as we have been experimenting with our work, like a lot of the practices you realize have a transactional backbone to them. And really what the team and I are doing consistently in our work is really trying to interrogate that and question it and say, how can this become less transactional and more reciprocal so that the process of the doing the work is as important as the outcomes and that the relationships that we build in the process are part of our ongoing work and our ongoing practice. Can you talk a little bit more about like that extractive? Because it's come up on our podcast a number of times of like, we're taught as designers to like go research and practice empathy to like learn about a user or a user group. But like you're saying, like we're just taking that information and then like going somewhere else with it versus I think the work that you're doing. So can you, you know, interrogate that a little bit for us? The way that we are trying to push our practice is really to decenter ourselves as designers and like to push as much of the work into the control of community and community, I think, meaning both the members of a community who are served by a system and also the members of an institution or an agency who are delivering service. And throughout the human-centered design process, really trying to think about how do we, as agency designers, design the process, but not necessarily control the outcomes of it. An example that I love to share is that I walk into a room uh, for a group with a family advisory board and see a woman who I know from a previous project. And that sense of like, I understand you, you understand me. I know you're, I've met your daughter. I've sat in her classroom, just has this very, a sense of trust and depth that I think is absent from the way that I used to practice design, which was very much what you described. Like, I'm going to show up. I'm going to give you 200 bucks. We're going to talk about Pepsi. I'm going to look in your refrigerator and then I'm going to go away and have no accountability to you about what I do with you, your information or the outcomes of that. And so that's some of the transformation that we're trying to explore in the work that we do. So in 2016, you founded Agency. Talk a little bit about that. You know, you talked about continuing. What, what, what was the founding of Agency like? This is a, a unique model. Uh, so tell us about Agency and, and the origin story, I guess. Yeah, so we are an experiment. We are fortunate to still be experimenting. When we first conceived of agency, the idea was like design can have an influence at a systemic level, but I don't know what that looks like because I didn't see any precedence for it. So the original hypothesis was let's draw a boundary around a system get in there, do some work and figure out where design can have impact. And with oh so much hubris, the 
boundary we decided to draw was around education in Boston. And of course, it's much bigger than it seemed on paper. It's just one word, education. How big could it actually be? It's so straightforward. So we were embedded with Dr. Tommy Chang during his time as superintendent. We were embedded on his team, sat in the central office for Boston Public Schools and did work both within BPS at the school level through to central office level, and then with nonprofit partners and other folks in the ecosystem in Boston. And we learned a lot about where like there are leverage points for design in the kind of work that we're trying to do. And then the next experiment was like, are the things that we're seeing here just in this one space or do they replicate in other systems? So we stretched and we left central office, we moved out. Um, we still work with BPS, but are also doing work in other systems like healthcare and criminal justice and education systems elsewhere in the country and learned that like, yes, the core opportunities for design do replicate in other systems. So that was kind of like proven out that what we thought was true was true. And now we're really in this stage of, like you were talking about earlier, like deepening that question of what should HCD look like if, when we're doing this work and how do we practice design in a more reciprocal, more cooperative way. What are some of the unique challenges to this work? You touched on a few of them, but I'm curious, as you're working with Boston Public Schools and trying to design systems, are there challenges that come out of that work versus designing a service for a brand, uh, if you will? The two that immediately come to mind first are that the ability to see change in a gratifying way. I mean, I, I do believe that our team is doing great work and that their impact is there. And, you know, we interviewed somebody not long ago and they said, this is generational work that we're doing. And so unlike in the corporate world where you could launch a product and people will buy it or and, and you get that immediate gratification. This is not that kind of work. And then the other thing is that there's a lot more like people management to quote our great former president, like there is no decider. It, it's got to be a collective activity. And that just is a different way of working. It's a different pace. It's a different style. Yeah. Humans, I like to think about humans end up being part like the design material as well. And those relationships end up being a design criteria, which of course adds complexity and length maybe, but the outcomes you know, tend to be richer, more authentic. Yeah. And I think one of the most satisfying things is when we see the process of doing the work as exemplifying the kind of outcome that everyone's working towards. So we recently, or we're still working with Cambridge Public Schools and the Cambridge Families of Color Coalition to design a new platform for family engagement and family communications within the district. And we went through a couple months process where that work was being designed by a team of caregivers of color and kind of on the ground district staff of color and seeing those folks, the community that's built through the design process is like the hint of what will come when this platform is, you know, built out and comes to life. That's so cool. I want to back up back to like agency as, as a business, right? As a, as a business that does social impact work, how do you approach finding projects, finding paying work, and then really decide like what you all are going to do? That's a question I ask myself all the time. <laughs> I, you also are a nonprofit. So we've had this conversation about like, does the scrappiness ever go away? And I describe our business as like a quilt. And so we're able to do a lot of different work and it, you know, somehow keeps us warm. Yeah, I say there's like a patchwork quilt of like all of our different fundings that come together to allow us to do this work. So it's a legitimate business strategy. Yeah, yeah. This is now we've made it real. Fantastic. 
So the filter that we apply is our mission. Is this about structural inequity? Like I am so lucky every day that the people that we work with, I don't have to say no because the people who we're talking to are committed to justice and equity. Like that's how they come to us. That's how we begin the conversation. I can't think of a time where I've had to say like, no, you don't meet the mission criteria. So then a lot of the work is about like, how do we make your patch in the quilt work for us and work for you? Somebody said to me once, like if we waited for the group to be ready, quote unquote, ready to do the work, we wouldn't be doing the work that's needed. The fortunate nature of having a small firm and being comfortable with a sense of emergence and being able to like follow a client through those like scoping and shaping conversations into the doing of the work. Savannah, one of our team members says like, we basically never go away. Like once we're stuck to you, we're stuck to you. And so having the flexibility to make that possible. That goes back to that authenticity that we talked about earlier. That must be so important. There's always a bit of client education that happens. I push back on that a little bit because I think one of the things that I started the firm, I was like, oh, it's really important that you know that you're going into a design process. And like, I think it's habituated when you work at a design firm that you're like, we're going to go through these five circles of activity. I think that we've released ourselves of that. Like that's our baggage, not our client's need. And so I think a lot of it is about educating us to the extent that we don't understand like the nuances of their conditions and their context and their challenges. I've never thought about this actually, but I think we try to take it upon ourselves to do the work to think about how does that challenge and art and the design process mesh with each other so that that's our kind of labor to do. You and your team wrote an article for us. I loved it. Uh, Mapping Systems of Violence and Justice in Boston. Very important project. It's it's a project that deserves its own, you know, whole hour discussion. But I'd love for you to share with our listeners some of the work that you did there. Thank you. And thanks for the opportunity to write it. So one of the things that we have found to be true is that uh, this goes without saying, but systems are complex beings. A person can't hold them all in their head. Um, And oftentimes, even if they could, they wouldn't have the information needed to do that because it's multiple entities coming up against each other with different ways of working and all that stuff. Um, So we do a lot of work in our company around mapping. And what we wrote about in the article for you all was around mapping justice systems. So in one map, we've uh, dug into the Suffolk County juvenile justice process and kind of brought to life for a young person from the moment of being arrested through to the moment of, you know, whatever that outcome is, what are what are the different stages of that process? And what, what are the very many different flavors of that process? And I think one of the things that it reveals is like how very fragile that is, that there's all these moments along the way where one person's decision can influence whether a kid, for example, goes into detention versus goes home. And that's a real weakness of that system. I love the work you're doing. It's I'm grateful to hear your perspective and share it with our audience. Thank you. Thank you. Listeners, to learn more about Augusta's work, visit agency.org, and that's spelled A-G-N-C-Y, so that's key. We'll post a link to their website and also to that great article I just mentioned. And okay, stay with us, Augusta, and in a minute, we'll bring Michael Brennan into our conversation. Design Night Live is back. Join us on Saturday, September 25th at 8 p.m. Eastern for a night filled with all things design. Design Night Live is a Saturday night filled with prizes, familiar faces, networking, a silent auction, and more. We have the amazing Design Matters host, Debbie Millman, as our keynote speaker. 
During this interactive virtual event, attendees from all over will come together to celebrate design and the effect that storytelling has on all of us. We'll be sharing the vision and impact of Design Museum everywhere and hear from designers from around the world about how storytelling can be so transformative. Join Design Museum everywhere for a night filled with inspiring company and incredible prizes. Get your tickets today. Visit designnightlive.org. See you there. We're back and Augusta and I are joined by our special guest, Michael Brennan. After college, Michael started off as an entry-level campaign associate at United Way for Southeastern Michigan, a nonprofit that works to build communities where all households are stable and every child can thrive. He worked there for 32 years, eventually serving as CEO and president. After 30 years in leadership at United Way, Michael's achievements include overseeing the rollout of the 211 social service hotline program across the United States, a system he also implemented in Metro Detroit and now receives 400,000 calls annually. In 2015, Michael founded Sevilla, a nonprofit design studio dedicated to changing the way our public serving institutions work through human-centered design. Sevilla's work was recognized by Harvard Kennedy School as one of the top innovations in American government, and they were listed as one of the top 25 doers, dreamers, and drivers of GovTech magazine. Sevilla received a global Core 77 Design Award for service design, and they were honored by the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts as one of the top organizations moving society forward. Michael's career meets at the intersection of social purpose and collective action. Michael, welcome to the show. So good to be here, Sam and Augusta. Really great to be with you. I was thinking and listening to you, you could teach a second course called the Quilt Strategy Yes, for viability for nonprofits. I love and, it. And uh, I think you'd get a long line that would want that. <laughs> oh, yes. I mean, I get questions all the time. I'm sure you both do as well. Like, how do you fund this work? I love that. The quilt. We'll call it the quilt. Yeah, the quilt. It'll be the business <laughs> school, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. You got to have fancy one one word, you know, methodologies. Michael, in your intro, I talked a little about United Way, moving from entry level campaign associate to CEO. Can you tell us about that change, about that experience with such you know an amazing organization? And then, you know, how do you view the role of leadership in this work for social good? Well, it's my route to United Way started with me quitting a job uh, after being married for three months. I was four months into the job. I found myself in something I couldn't articulate it at the time that just wasn't a fit. I wandered a bit and I came upon, I always say, you know, a couple of things got placed in my life by a bigger hand and that was my spouse of 37 years. But I was also finding uh, a place of purpose. And I happened to come through the United Way doors, quite frankly, not knowing a lot. I was 21, 22 years old and just started um, finding my way there on, quite honestly, just meeting people who were coming from industry, from government, from nonprofits, who were just working to make community a better place. And that collective action really responded to me. I grew up in a family of six. And I just learned early on, it takes like the whole family to go get it done. And when I saw this kind of in action and the community level, like it takes the whole community to make things go. I started my career in Detroit and moved to West Michigan with United Way, but it wasn't about until 10 years in. I, I think I'm just a really slow learner. 
Uh, I was about 30 years old and I just really feel like my synapses connected and I just began to see these systems and these institutions and the role of the three sectors in society and the role that an institution like a United Way could play. And that further captured my imagination on how might you design an organization that truly brings some uh, enduring work. And in that journey, when I was over in Grand Rapids, Michigan, I met a gentleman who changed my life. He happened to run Steelcase at the time. He was new to that. His name was Jim Hackett. And he became a friend and a mentor, heavily involved in design to the workplace and IDEO and things like that. And he introduced design to me. This is in the mid-90s. And I walked out of there thinking, I don't want to do furniture, but I'm really interested in how might you really design systems in a way through the eyes of the end user. And then I went on a 15-year, continued my role with United Way, 15-year walk of trying to bring that into the organization. And I would, quite frankly, say uneven, some bright moments, many train wrecks you know, <laughs> along the way. You know, It's a lot about culture change and things of that nature. And then in about 2013, I was running the United Way in Detroit. I decided I was going to commit the rest of my life to this intersection of design and social impact. And I went back to Jim almost 20 years later and just said, I need to go through a process of unlearning. And then I need to really step into an openness of learning. And I'm in my 50s at this juncture, right? And I hopefully can pull that thread forward to create an environment that allows this kind of nascent thing at a time of this impact, social impact design to come forward. And I ultimately made the decision to take that full step and leave a mission and work that I absolutely loved, but I felt really called to go do it. And so that was the founding of Sevilla, right? Founding of Sevilla and one of the very best things that happened there, I made a decision early. I did not want to be in the model of like the single leader do it. I wanted to do it in partnership. And I had met a couple of folks out at Stanford. They had moved to Detroit, Adam and Lena Selzer. And the best thing that ever happened to Sevilla was Adam and Lena Selzer joining at the hip with me. We took six months and we had about enough of our own resource to rent an empty storage closet in downtown Detroit to start just experimenting and seeing if there was a there there in this mission that we were imagining. They're 20, 30 years younger than I, and they just bring a wealth of both capacity and brilliance and heart and soul. And I think the, the mixture of the three eventually had some deep work come forward. Tell us about Sevilla. Like, what's the mission? What's the model? We aspire to a more civil society for all. We aspire to ultimately impact a billion people on the planet. And we think being a small team, maybe over 100 years, we might do that, you know. But we really do think that our primary focus around public serving institutions, and we carry a lot of optimism that change can occur there. Some of the most significant change that's needed to really advance the priorities, I think that we all carry needs to take place there. And so we really believe in working with them through human-centered design that significant and large-scale change can take place. 
And so, yeah, we're a nonprofit. We're based in Detroit. We're about a team of 15. Our first body of work, I really appreciated the conversation you two were having about projects. We don't aspire for projects. We made a decision early on. We want to do deep bodies of work and over long periods of time. And our first body of work was around and has been access to public benefits. You know, in America, about 25% of Americans are navigating public benefit systems to keep afloat and move forward. And so we started uh, some work in Michigan six years ago, and we're now six years in on what ultimately will be a full redesign through the human Center process of the benefit systems in Michigan. And we were chatting earlier offline that, you know, I keep in front of me on my desk, the artifact that actually activated the, the whole thing as I walked in, because I had been carrying around it this thing with me for six years prior to starting Sevilla as an artifact. And I know this is all people listening, but imagine a form 42 pages long, 18,000 words, a thousand questions. And that's what you have to complete in order to access food assistance or Medicaid or childcare assistance. And that's what we started with. The striking thing about that is I had worked on access to public benefits for 25 years. And I'll just be straight up. Never did I think that the key domino to affecting change was that we ought to focus on the paper application. And that's where we began. And we obviously have gone wider and deeper than that. But that ended up being the key that unlocked the door that allows people to access benefits and certainly the state to make the right determination on whether someone's eligible. We were talking offline, Michael, about how that form is like a proxy for a lot of other system behavior. I'm curious, like, how did you discover that that was the key domino? When we started Sevilla, the very first thing we did with this, this started in the first week, Lena Selzer really took this by the horn and started moving it forward, is we just started going out each week and sitting down with residents at their place of residence to just understand their stories. And we'd spend two, three hours a time of just, not just what is your experience with the form, but just how does this fit into your life? And what is that really lived experience for it? And we did that month after month. And then ultimately, the state of Michigan gave us access to sitting down with frontline workers. We weren't in any kind of contractual arrangement. After four months, we invited them back down. We have a simple rule. There's no PowerPoint in Sevilla. And so with that constraint, when the leaders from the state of Michigan came down, we walked them into an immersive experience of what it is like to navigate this. And to your question, Augusta, one of the key things on it is after we sat them down and had them fill out the 42-page application in the hallway with other people, walked them in to a hundred foot journey map that was scrolled out across the floor of what happens to that application from the time someone receives it to it getting the final determination. And it was literally a hundred feet. And I'm sure their jaws were on the floor because they haven't thought in this kind of systemic journey. They had never seen it through the eyes of both the end user and their frontline team. And it was through that work that we ultimately came back to the form itself and realized that unless that is filled out, you can't get in. 
unless that's filled out, you can't be let in. And that is a very powerful and unique position in these systems, you know? Um, so we decided if we could make headway there, we're also going to understand this system in a way that we hadn't to date. One of the things I was really excited to hear from you, Michael, is that I think we share this like theory of change or whatever view that design is well applied in change making from within like within the institution. So when you think, when you talk about like the form is your way in, it resonates a lot because on our team, we, we, we talk a lot about the fact that we are very often taking, making a commitment to like an inside out, like blurring that line. And I'm wondering, like, have you thought about in all of that exploratory work that you got to do, did you think about other change making methods and how did that help you figure out that this was your path to invest in? Yeah, well, we had a whole range of ideas. And when I talk about that journey map, there were literally a hundred things that could have gotten attention. Business process improvements. I mean, just redesign of physical structures. I mean, there was all types of things. The time with residents, you know, made it really clear. If you didn't get the friction out of this and some humanity into it, it almost didn't matter what else happened? You really had to get that right. And our commitment uh, always has been is the residents that give us time is at the end. We want them to see their fingerprints all over it because we live in the community in which we're working. The very first person that we interviewed on this, her name is uh, Latina Denson. She was just at Sevilla and we celebrated her 50th birthday together six years later. And what struck me about that is it's just not a transaction of an exchange of content. This is actually someone who's walking in partnership. She can look at something and know that she changed the arc of it. Everything you just described, and you mentioned there, maybe there wasn't a contractual relationship in the beginning, but are your clients, they're looking at that journey map and seeing the value, and then are projects sort of like falling out of that? How are you finding these projects to do? It sounds way more linear than it ever was. We funded ourselves for six months and then about ran out of money. We were kind of going along in this discussion with the state, but from the time that the state arrived to the time that we were in a formal arrangement, it had been one year. And our feeling was if we could get this right and demonstrate it as a way that the state could work, that it could widen the conversation about really thinking about the whole benefit system. I mean, the application is just, it's the beginning. We just made a very important like strategic bet early on is we were going to go deep with a partner. And if that didn't work, we did not have plan B. That was plan A and we were working plan A. And to this day, I can't tell you the importance of that partnership and the, the leaders in there. One of our key criteria on whether engaging with an institution is, is there courageous leadership that is committed for the long haul? All right. I want to get in some audience questions because we do have someone who wants to ask live. So let's get Tanya here. There we go. You're on. Hi, Augusta. Hi, Michael. Thank you for that great talk. Well, okay. So in my view, I think you both have very rich careers, I think, in like impact and meaning. Um, 
And you both talked about like moments where synapses clicked and you figured out this purpose for your life. So I was wondering, was there a moment early on in your careers or at whatever point where both of you just knew that like, this is what you wanted to do for the rest of your life and what led to that moment? Sure. Um, I, I think the easy answer is no. It's like a constant hill, lovely walk. Like I'm not complaining, but, um, I don't think it was like, you know, the scales falling from the eyes. And now I realize that this is what my life is about. I think that this is a journey and I will say I came to it, not from like, I didn't come into the work from a do-goodery perspective. I came into it because it was like the hardest thing I could see. And I was like, that is what I want to wrestle with. And then have been learning from my colleagues and our clients and the folks we work with. Um, all of the layers underneath it. So I didn't have a moment of awakening. I think it's ever ongoing. Sun's shining, your eyes are open. Yeah, or got the hiking boots on. What about you, Michael? I would agree. I think it takes constant tending. And it is in that tending, though, that you can reach moments of clarity or awakening. But I, I think it's rare that it's like the lightning bolt comes out of the sky and hits you. It's a little bit like you know, what's luck when opportunity meets preparation? Well, in this particular case, I think if someone is really tending to what matters to understand their self and how that fits, I will say as it related to Sevilla, while that entity itself wasn't like crystal clear at all to me, I did get to a juncture. I was driving and listened to <laughs> something and it just hit me that this intersection and design around social impact was going to be a focus for the rest of my life. I had no idea what that meant at all, you know, and it took me probably five years from that to actually ultimately get to Sevilla. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Tanya, for that question. Uh, I have a question here from Candace. How do you figure out if courageous leadership is present in an organization? You know, what are some of the markers? I guess maybe start with you, Michael. Yeah, there's no better indicator of future than kind of past. Like when a leader can really articulate and demonstrate their commitment to doing long haul work, it's usually like this is not their first time that they're set, stepping into it. So there's a base of experience on it. But probably the biggest signal to me is that they're vulnerable and they're willing to be vulnerable. I always say, and this is one of the things that we really try to do at Seville is we have this term of generous orthodoxy, that we try to meet leaders with a real generous orthodoxy, uh, meaning a lot of respect for the difficulty that they have to navigate very difficult roles. And that's kind of respect that tradition, that orthodoxy. The generosity is part of our job is to help stretch them. But I find when it can get a leader a little bit how I often felt at two in the morning and like I, you know, lay awake thinking about a board meeting or something that I'm going into and saying, I really don't have the answer on this. And everyone's expecting kind of the answer. And when a leader can arrive and say, I don't know, and I'm I'm willing to walk in towards that direction, that is a key indicator that someone is open, vulnerable, and um, I pay a lot of attention to that. Michael, thank you so much for sharing your story, your expertise. 
Uh, this is a great conversation. Augusta, thank you for your questions as well. Listeners, to check out Michael's work, check out Sevilla.org. We'll post a link to that. We're going to take one more quick break and we'll return for our weekly dose of good design. Okay, it's my favorite time of the week. Every week we share our weekly dose of good design, our examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I will go first. I am doing so much gardening right now uh, and I love it as my as our listeners know here. Uh, for Father's Day, uh, this past Father's Day, my wife and kids got me this really cool little gadget. So I'm always like in the garden with like scissors that I find in the drawer and I guess my wife's constantly complaining that I'm like ruining our scissors. But anyway, so she got me these little garden pruners and they're like a ring that you just put on. So like your hands, they're they're billed as like hands-free ring pruners or like hold-free scissors. It's not totally accurate, right? Because they are in your hand, but like you can have them on your finger and still use your hands to do other stuff like pick stuff or, you know, whatever. Uh, and then when you need to, you kind of just kind of slide them forward in your grip and unlock them. And then they're like these little scissors. So you're like Edward Scissorhands in the garden. Basically, yeah. Like you have the scissors always there, but you can also be kind of like doing stuff and then like, oh, I need to trim this. Boop. And like, you're good to go. Um, this very simple design, comfortable to use. Bonus points for Design Museum is that they're orange. So they fit the brand. Also, they're very easy to find when I, you know, if I do kind of drop them somewhere in the garden. Uh, they're made by Sabaton, which is a brand I don't know, uh, but you could find them in like garden supply retailers or of course, Amazon. So I'll say happy pruning everyone and we'll post the link. Okay, that's mine. Let's go to Augusta. Cool, so mine's totally different. Um, as background, I identify as biracial and also I identify as a person who really doesn't like musical theater. Um, so it's, I think, a testament to the power of, you know, like representation that my pick is in the Heights. I went and saw it with my daughter a week ago and, you know, the soundtrack's been on nonstop in our house. Uh, and it just felt so good to watch. I realized like I was just grinning for no reason because it feels, it felt really good to see a screen full of non-white folks and their, um, lives and loves and sorrows, you know, up there being celebrated and being honored. So pick of the week, music is pretty good. I love that. And I've heard that from multiple people that are like, I'm not in the musical theater, but In the Heights was incredible. And it was like a dazzling display of like amazing community. And yeah, that's awesome. Glad you mentioned it. Okay. And Michael, wrap us up. Mine's a book. I was once in Brooklyn and there was a small studio called Order that's based there and i walked in and they just had a little like area with a few books stacked up in their workspace behind there and i just cold call walked in a uh, person got up introduced we started talking and um there's this book that they uh jesse reed and uh, a former co-worker of his hamish smith had put together and launched a Kickstarter a while, I think this is maybe five, six, seven years ago. That is the New York City Transit Authority Graphics Standards Manual. Oh, cool. And it is this, you know, 
New York City transit in the 60s was just a chaos of signs, both in graphics and verbiage and placement. And Unimark went and worked on it for four years. And then 1970 launched the standards manual that, you know, spent time on font and height of type and location and spacing and color and how to use arrows and set a whole standard for the transit system. And I love it, obviously, for the work we do of bringing beauty to everyday life that matters to, you know, the millions of individuals that are uh, utilizing it. So Jesse and Hamish had found the manual in the basement and they pulled it out and they saw this beauty in it and they converted it over into this book that I think just is a really great artifact of how you can get friction out of the system some humanity in and how good design for all really does matter, you know, and they've since uh, gone on and done something around the national parks and around NASA. And so, yeah, I just think it's uh, something that's beautiful and it's a good reminder of how it ought to be. Yeah. I love that. That's got to pick that up. I love that kind of stuff, like information, graphics, well-organized. It's wonderful. Awesome. That's our show. Thank you again to Augusta Neal and Michael Brennan for joining us and for just an awesome conversation. Thank you to our audience for your great questions. To find links to the resources we discussed in our episode, visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. If you want to see more from Design Museum Everywhere, as I mentioned before, Design Night Live is coming soon. So join us on Saturday, September 25th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern for a night filled with all things design. If you came last year, you know why I'm excited. It's just a really fun night with like design prizes and networking and we have a silent auction. Our keynote speaker is Debbie Millman. She's an author, educator, curator, and host of another podcast, Design Matters. So we'll hear from her. This is an interactive virtual event all about celebrating design, design storytelling, and how that impacts all of us. So. It's free for all members, uh, so become a member and you can get your member ticket at designmuseumeverywhere.org and join us for a fun night. As always, you can find us on social media and follow us there. We're on Twitter at design underscore museum and on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. Plus we're on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. This episode was written and edited and produced by the amazing Amor Yates with editing support by Emily Roberts and additional research and writing by Tanya Chabla. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the whole team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thank you for listening, and we'll talk again next week.